We're going to be in 2 Chronicles chapter 19. And as we come to 2 Chronicles chapter 19, we come to a, a new king. This is Jehoshaphat. And of the 19 kings of Judah, of course, there was Saul, the bad king, and then there was David, the great king, and then his son Solomon, and then the kingdom became divided, and you have the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. And in those that southern kingdom of Judah, you have 19 kings, and quite a few good ones and a couple of great ones. And Jehoshaphat is definitely, you put him right there with Josiah and Hezekiah as great kings in the kings of Judah. He comes on the scene about 60 years after uh, Solomon stepped into eternity. So it's not that far removed. Again, so for people my age, you go, hey, JFK's president, I was born in 61, and you add my timeline, I'm 62. That's how far Jehoshaphat is from the time of the great King Solomon. I like to use those timelines because it helps us realize it's not, that long, it's not that long ago in the timeline for Jehoshaphat. Now, he followed Asa, the king, who had reigned for 41 years, had been a good king, but had a bad ending. And so he comes to power. Now, Jehoshaphat, he would be a king for 25 years. And he came, became king when he was 35. So he stepped into eternity at the age of 60 and a phenomenal run. Now, remember, these kings of Judah often had conflict with the northern kingdom, civil war with the tribes in the north. And so when he became king, he fortified the cities and he strengthened the kingdom. He sent out his leaders, uh, priests and Levites, to go teach the, the Bible, the Old Testament, in the different villages to, different, to all the people of Israel. So he, he, was, he did things no one else ever done before, and it was awesome. And it was of great influence and certainly things that God would bless. Then he made the mistake of allying himself with Ahab, the worst king ever in the north. Almost lost his life. He survived that. And uh, in battle uh, for Ramoth Gilead and the Syrians, he got away and Ahab didn't. And then he got rebuked by a prophet. And then we get this shift in chapter 19. He's actually four chapters in the Bible, and this is the third of the four. And we get this shift now where he's consolidating sort of the zenith of his reign. And we pick it up in verse 4 of chapter 19 after those things I just covered. And we read that, so Jehoshaphat dwelt at Jerusalem... And he went out again among the people from Beersheba to the mountains of Ephraim. And he brought them back to the Lord God of their fathers. Then he set judges in the land throughout all the fortified cities of Judah, city by city, and said to the judges, Take heed to what you're doing, for you do not judge for man, but for the Lord, who is with you in the judgment. Now therefore, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Take care and do it. For there is no iniquity with the Lord our God, no partiality, nor taking of bribes. Moreover, in Jerusalem, for the judgment of the Lord and for controversies, Jehoshaphat appointed some of the Levites and priests, some of the chief fathers of Israel. And when they returned to Jerusalem, and he commanded them, saying, Thus you shall act in the fear of the Lord, faithfully and with a loyal heart. Whatever case comes to you from your brethren who dwell in their cities, whether of bloodshed or offenses against the law of God or his commandments, against statutes or ordinances, you shall warn them lest they trespass against the Lord and wrath come upon you and your brethren. Do this and you will not be guilty. So if you caught this, Judas' territory, like the size of Orange County, a little, little bit more than that, and it says city by city he appointed quality men to be judges he wanted to have good justice so if you can imagine like a governor wanted to appoint mayors in every city that are are men and women of uh, re good reputation 
that there's going to be faithfulness, there's going to be justice and equity, and it's a, it's a good thing, which is what we'd like. Wouldn't we all love politicians that were transparent and God-fearing and appointed people who minister justice and justice and good things and no winking of the eye or shuffling of the feet, no bribes and stuff like that? It'd be amazing. And so this is the kind of leadership he brought to the table as the king of Judah. So he's appointing the leadership. And if you notice, he gave the same exhortation to these judges. It didn't go in detail with no bribes. But he says to do it with a loyal heart. So all the surrounding region and then the centralized place of worship where the temple is, hey, let's have justice. Let's fear the Lord. And if you caught it, he said that the fear of the Lord will be upon them. So for the regional judges, he said that the fear of the Lord be upon you. And those Jerusalem judges, he said that the fear of the Lord would be upon them. Which brings us to the topic of the fear of the Lord. And when I went home Tuesday night after teaching these chapters, I thought, you know, I've never really done a study on the fear of the Lord. So I did what anyone else would do. I Googled it. Because I'm looking for a definition for fear of the Lord. Like, what, what really is the fear of the Lord? If we passed out some note cards and said, hey, why don't you tonight write down in the next two minutes what you think the fear of the Lord is to define it? we'd get a pretty diverse flow. And I know that because if you Google fear of the Lord, you get a whole plethora of different opinions of what that, that term means. And you get them based upon different denominations. So like the Reformed churches say this, and then these evangelicals say this. And so you have like to the left, you have this like, well, it's really more like, you know, respect and reverence, you know, that we should, you know, have respect for God. And on the other, it's like, no, you're under the wrath of God. And you should fear lightning coming from the throne of God. So you, you get sort of like this variation from these different perspectives and so, of course, the best thing you can do when Google's so spread out is just pull out your strong concordance and look at every text there is for the fear of the Lord, this phrase. And there's about 100 or more of them if you take your time and you go through them all, which I pretty much did, and you start looking at them, and you find that even within God's word, because God's word interprets God's word, he begins to interpret what this phrase means. And so tonight, what I want to do for us topically is look at what it really means when we say the fear of the Lord. Because Jehoshaphat said this twice to the regional judges and the central judges in Jerusalem. And he had a basis for saying this because the term was used previously in the Old Testament. But most interestingly, by King David himself in the Psalms and quite a bit by Solomon in the Proverbs. So Jehoshaphat's going to be looking toward David and Solomon for inspiration and in, in doing such a thing to use this phrase like where does this come from we didn't see this from asa or any other ones that came before him we didn't we didn't see it all of a sudden he just goes the fear of the lord when you're a judge the fear of the lord when you're a judge so he's touching this term that we haven't really seen this way the first place that we want to look at for understanding topically this term, the fear of the Lord, is actually going to be in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians 5, it's a pretty famous passage where Paul's writing the Corinthian church that had their challenges, like all churches do. And there in 2 Corinthians, he said something about standing before the Lord and giving an account. And so the first point that we would say about the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord is judgment and accountability. Let me say that again. The fear of the Lord 
is judgment and accountability. Judgment before God and accountability for every human soul that has ever lived and experienced the human experience. It's quite clear in the scriptures this is so. And this text from Paul the Apostle being led by the Holy Spirit is a really good one to use to bring this forth. It's, it's in other places, but it's so clear right here. So it says this. He's talking about their ministry and the apostolic ministry he had. And he said, therefore, we make it first, excuse me, 2 Corinthians 5, 9. He says, therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him, that is the Lord. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men but are well known to God, and I also trust as well known to your conscience. So in the context of what Paul's saying here is that, hey, we fear the Lord. We are transparent in our ministry. We, we don't do shady things. We don't have an agenda. We're transparent with you. We're, we're good in, before your conscience and our conscience before God. And the Lord knows, in fact, that phrase where he says, but we are well known to God. They, they have... Paul saw himself as having a great relationship with the Lord. And, and so God knows us. We know him. But knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men because we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And when we look at the book of Acts, where Paul's going out in his apostolic ministry, beginning in Acts 13, through the end of the book, whether he's standing before kings or, or people that can't walk, he's, he's bold about the Lord. And he's very bold about actually accountability and judgment before the Lord. In fact, in Acts 17, there on Mars Hill, that famous sermon he gave, as he was being sharing ideas and thoughts in the marketplace of the Greek philosophers, he said that God's determined a time where he will judge all men according to the man Christ Jesus, who he raised from the dead, as an affirmation of who Jesus is and the authority he has as the judge of all. Now, Jesus himself would say the Father judges no one, but has appointed all judgment to the Son. He said that in the Gospel of John. So when you see there in the book of Revelation, God's judgments, it's Jesus who's doing the judging. The Father commits all judgment to the Son. But in this text here, it says the terror of the Lord in the New King James, verse 11. But there are other translations that translate this fear of the Lord. And this Greek word really has the idea of fear, but a more stronger fear. Thus, the New King James translators give it terror, but, for example, the New American Standard Bible gives it the word fear. So if I was teaching verse by verse to the NASB, we would already have that fear of the Lord from the original Greek coming to English to us. So it's an appropriate text, and it brings up the accountability to stand before God and give an account for judgment of our lives, and that it's something to be revered. Jesus talks about the fear of the Lord essentially, directly, emphatically, one time when he talked about persecutions against the church, and he said, don't fear him who can take your life. Fear the Lord who has power over body and soul and hell. Wow, that's, that's strong wording, right? So Jesus said, don't fear the man or the woman who can threaten you or bully you for your faith or any other thing. You should fear the Lord who has authority over your physical body, over your soul, and all eternity. Power to cast into hell to be eternally separated from God. So Jesus said that and used that term. David in the Psalms 
Of course, preceding this time by about 80 and 90 years, contextually to Jehoshaphat using this term, the fear of the Lord. As I mentioned, he uses the term quite a few times. He says, like, serve the Lord in, in the to serve God in the fear of the Lord. But he said that Israel, all, that all Israel fear the Lord. And that should get our attention because they were the people of covenant at that time. So you could say, let the people of covenant in a relationship with God fear the Lord. But then he said later on, this is all in the first 41 Psalms. Later on, he says, let all the nations fear the Lord. So he starts with the people of covenant, God's people, which now, of course, is the church of Jesus Christ. And then he extends it to all the nations. And, of course, we know that the gospel is to be preached to all nations that people can come to saving faith. Or as it says in throughout the New Testament, he who has the Son has life. Who does not have the Son, the wrath of God abides upon them. And we know that when a person gives their life to Christ, they pass from death to life. They're born again. They're born anew. And that essentially this phrase that were written in the Lamb's Book of Life, that we're in this book. And we understand as we harmonize Scripture that when we step into eternity, we'll stand before the Lord and the Father will see us like he sees the Son and the perfection of the Son with the perfect sinless life that he lived. So really when a believer stands before the Lord in eternity, it's not one of judgment, but it's one of, in a sense, evaluation. Because Jesus said that there's no, we'll give an account for every idle word. There's nothing hidden that won't be revealed, the thoughts and intents of the heart. But for the believer, it's, it's really toward rewards. It's what it's toward. It's not toward a judgment of like you're in or you're not. It's more like the high school team banquet where like this is a awards banquet and this is our offensive player of the year, defensive player of the year, most inspirational player on the team. It's more like that, like reward. We're all on the team. We're all we're varsity. We all got our varsity letter. But these are the rewards, if you will. And that's really what's... Well, that's what's clearly taught. We're told things are tested by fire, but we're saved, and it's tested by fire. And the, the good motives, every, everything we've done that's good, we talked about this last week in application with Asa, but a cup of cold water in Jesus' name, there's good fruit. Example, my sister, Barbie. Uh, and I talk about her all the time. She's six years sobriety now. This week was six years sobriety for Barbie. So praise the Lord for that. And I've been telling her since she had her knee surgery uh, and was home without work for six weeks, write a book, write a book, write a book, or, you know, something. And she told me that, because she lived on the streets for six years, homeless in Vista. Amazing. She's an honor student at Vista High School for the Panthers. And then, ah, it's just like amazing, like, like what drugs and bad relationships will do. And I was down in Vista yesterday, so I was thinking even the more about her being behind the dollar store and all that. But she, we were talking today, this morning. She said, oh, Joy, I'm so excited. I saw a homeless person, a, girl, a woman in Vero Beach, and I, I, had, I had cash in my wallet, and I gave her $5, and I shared my story with her, my testimony. Now, think about this. If you're homeless, if $5 is good, then, you know, that's Del Taco. That's, that's a taco or a burrito or something, right? But to get it from a woman who was six years homeless with a grocery cart and considered insane and in and out of jail that time too, man, when she starts telling you her story and tells you she's been sober for six years, employee of the month at Home Depot, owns a house, and is a productive member of society, can you imagine how much authority that is? $5 in Jesus' name. She gave $5 in Jesus' name. And she told me, I want to write the book. I'm going to get a laptop, Joey, and I'm going to get internet. 
Because I told her, you can get first Barbie, let's get rid of the cable, let's get internet, let's stream, you know, okay, and get a laptop because you can't write a book from your phone. Say like, poco y poco, you know, like <laughs> little by little. But you think about that, like for Barbie, when she stands before the Lord, like all those evil things that she did, the grief she caused my parents, that's under the blood of Christ. But something like that, that's good fruit. The fire's like, boom, you know, when she stole stuff from my parents. Boom, it goes up in fire. But a, a $5 bill in Vero Beach on July 22nd to a homeless woman, and she listened the whole time, that's, that's eternal fruit. So that's what she did to my parents is wood, hay, and stubble. What she did for this homeless woman, that's like gold, precious metal. You follow me, WG? So when she gives an account, that's good fruit for eternity. The other stuff, it's just chaff. But so as far as the east is from the west, so has God removed our iniquities from us. So it's not like she's got to be punished for what the things, the grief and sorrow she brought my parents. Christ was punished for that. But she didn't have any good fruit for it, but Christ was punished for it. But things like that, this is good fruit. Cup of cold water in Jesus' name. Everything gets rewarded. And that was our topic last week. So uh, to, to give an account. So the fear of the Lord is judgment and accountability. Now for the non-believer, we're told in Revelation 19, the books were open. And I truly emphatically believe those books are books of judgments. That there's a book on everyone's life. Now, when we give our life to Christ, he's the author and finisher of our faith. So our life is like a book and he's just writing the pages when we submit to him. But a life without Christ and just imploding on all the selfish, self-centered things that we built our life in and unbelief, pride, and arrogance, and the flesh, the world, the flesh, and captivity to the devil, it's a bad story because there's no redemption in it. What, what shows and movies do you like the most? Redemption. Comeback is the number one thing that sells all the time is comeback. It's always number one. If there's no redemption, who wants to watch it? There's no happy ending. But we're all going to give an account. So the books are open there in Revelation, and the sea, the dead, there's a day of the Lord. And the whole world lies under the wrath of, of, of God, we're told. That's why Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. That we know the whole world is under the wrath of God. And they're all accountable from creation to every, everything that God ever did to reveal himself to every soul on this planet. Every generation, every soul is accountable for. In whatever cognitive capacities or mental capacities they have to understand it. We're all accountable. And I believe when those books are open, they're books, of, first of all, of unbelief. Because we're saved by faith, so to be unsaved is unbelief. And so, and then, you know, God resists the problem that gives grace to the humble. So the unbelief and pride, and then it's just, there's no, it's like how people lie, lie, lie. Most, you know, it just, it's, it's a human nature to lie. And then when you get called out for it, it's just like, it's the worst. Because if it can be proven that you lied, it's just, it's just, and some people who lie, they'll still never even confess they're lying, even when it's provable that they're, they're lying. Well, let me say this, when People, from the fear of the Lord is judgment and accountability. When that day happens for in eternity, the Bible says every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so when people are cast out of his presence for all eternity into their own, to their eternal hell, the outer place of darkness they built for themselves with the lives they lived in unbelief, they're going to confess before the throne of God that he is the king. 
So the fear of the Lord is realizing that we're all going to be judged and given account. And there's no way around it. Now, some of us, we understand this a little better than others. And a lot of people don't even want to think about it. So they put little Darwin stickers on the back of their car saying, oh, I came from a rock that became a tadpole and became an alligator, became a monkey and became me. Right? By the way, I just saw a Darwin sticker the other day. And I thought, you know, it's science so far. That means it's proven in every situation. Since those stickers showed up in the early 90s, and I saw them in Vermont when I was Virginia first, then Vermont, I have proven thus far in my life that if you see someone with a Darwin stick on the back of their car, drive up next to them, and they will never, ever, ever be smiling. Because it's hard to fight against God. And it's even harder to fight against God when you think you came from a rock that came to life. That's not science. That's folly. Because the fool is in his heart, there is no God. And deep down in their hearts, we're told in Ecclesiastes 3, God has put eternity in our hearts. And they know there's a day of accounting. The fear of the Lord is to know that there's going to be judgment and accountability. Even as a kid, I was aware of that. Maybe it's because I was raised Catholic, I'm not sure. But whenever I did bad stuff as a kid, and I did plenty of things, like I said in my book, I never got a spanking I didn't deserve, and I didn't get half as many as I did deserve. But I, I always knew, like, I'm not getting away with anything. Whatever I did, stealing baseball cards from 7-Eleven, oh, oh, there's, there's going to be wrath to pay for this. When I stole the bike and then my surfboard got stolen the next day, I was like, hmm. Yeah, there's, uh, no one gets rid of anything. It's a good thing to have the fear of the Lord. When you come to Christ, the fear of the Lord is this side of the cross. But when you, after you come to Christ, you know the love of the Lord, which is declared from you from the cross when you're on the side of the fear of the Lord. And you don't... You know fear before you really know love, but then when you know love, you still understand the fear. The, fear the, the love grows and the fear fades, but it's there. And we'll close tonight with that thought. It's the great reality. The second thing we see about the fear of the Lord is, is to hate evil. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Solomon said this. In, in uh, Proverbs 8.13, if you want to reference that, Solomon, there's a ton of passages with Solomon saying the fear of the Lord. It's all over the Proverbs. It's like just a checklist. You just go right through them chapter by chapter. And of course, the first one is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But here he defines what the fear of the Lord is. This is a wonderful interpretation for us. He says in verse 13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride, arrogance, and the evil way and the perverse mouth I hate. So the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Hmm. So the fear of the Lord is to is judgment and accountability. That we know there's a judgment and accountability, and so we fear the Lord. But the fear of the Lord is to hate evil because it's completely contrary to his holy nature. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all, morally. And we know there's light and darkness. And we know, again, when God created time, space, and matter, he gave the light of day and the darkness of night, and there's a distinction. And then in the Gospel of John, when Jesus is introduced to us in the Gospel message, that he is the light of men, but men don't come to light because they love darkness. And so that Genesis 1 becomes John 1 that goes from creation to moral, moral light, moral darkness. And Jesus said men don't come to light because they love darkness, but the one who comes to him, he will by no means cast out. So darkness and evil are associated together. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, and of course, pride and arrogance go with evil, and the evil way in the perverse mouth. One of the great evils of a fallen world is you can't stop a perverse mouth. 
No matter how hard you try to stop slander or haters in social media or in your life or whatever, you just, you just, it's, some people never get it and they're not going to get it. And God gives them a self-determination to spew venom and toxin and evil out of their mouth to their lasting days. And sometimes you see these people in their 80s and 90s in assisted living or memory care, and that's all they got is poison, toxins, and evil because that's all they ever had, and they're just imploding. You sowed, you sowed, and you're, you reap, and you reap, and who, God forbid what eternity looks like for those kind of people. Except it's very dark to be imploding on your perverse mouth in outer darkness by yourself, as Jesus so clearly said in the Gospel of Mark and other places. But really this sentence, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. And we, I don't know, like, before we get saved, we kind of like evil, you know? The world, the flesh, and the devil. Like, we have a flesh that's drawn toward evil. There's a, as Pastor Chuck Smith used to say, we have a fascination with evil. That's why back in the 70s, you know, like, you'd be at the supermarket. I don't even know if National Enquirer still exists, but, man, in the 70s, you see the National Enquirer, like, oh, look at this. Wow. And it's evil. You just want to hear about, you know, we love to see successful people fail, Right? And, and, you know, it's like, oh, and they did this and all the crime shows. Why are crime shows always popular? Because we're drawn to evil. You get 10 series, you know, 10 episode series on the, some random murder in a small town. It's a number one show on, you know, streaming for, for the year. There's just a fascination with evil. But as you come, when you come to Christ and as you press into the light, you begin to see distinction between light and the righteousness and the holiness of God from darkness and the evil of men. And you begin to realize how evil it is. You think, oh, that's not that evil. And then you realize, really, how the farther you get from darkness, the more you get in the light, you realize, no, that really is evil. And that's why God said through the prophet Isaiah, woe to those who call good evil and evil good. And we see that so much in our own society. But you can't let that shift you or me or us from the place of knowing what is right and what is wrong. What is good, what is bad. What is light, what is darkness. And I, said, I suppose that's been probably the most frustrating thing with my timeline of when I've lived. Because we all know that, uh, particularly as baby boomers and front end Gen, Gen Xers, that we, we've just seen this where there, everything was clearly right and wrong morally. Now there's all kinds of things that were wrong in this country that have been fixed socially, but we don't want to confuse civil rights with immorality. There's true civil rights that have been tried to make those right and, and fix those things, and that's valid and that should be done. But the insanity of these demented people and the laws they've tried to force on society, that has nothing to do with civil rights. It's evil. It's total evil. And that's why we can't, talk, we can't accept it. I've mentioned this before in Zig Ziglar's famous book, See at the Top. He talks about how evil goes from being something you, that repels you, that you would reject, and then you tolerate it, then you accept it, then you, par, then you, accept, then you embrace it, and then you participate in it. And if there's not a truer description of the last 20 years in the United States of America of evil, I don't know what is. Zig Ziglar's been an attorney for at least 10 years now, but boy, he called that one right in the late 90s. Because that's exactly what we see. It's that diluting down where you just get tired of resisting evil. Like, gosh, you just dealt with this thing. Now you got to confront this thing. Like, you got to be kidding me. Like what you see in the public school system, it's like, gosh, like, oh, how did we get here? Because you went from being repulsed by it to tolerating it. 
and then accepting it and then participating in it. And then eventually, of course, you know, the end is you're in bondage to it. That's what happens. That's how people get addicted to cigarettes. And some of you know that firsthand. You're repulsed by cigarettes. But you smoke enough cigarettes, then you, you tolerate it, then you embrace it, and then you are a slave. And of all the addictions I've seen on planet Earth, I put cigarettes, tobacco right up there near the very top. I know people that have kicked heroin but not kicked cigarettes. So, because remember, I did a drug and alcohol ministry for years. <laughs> evil is evil. Sin is sin. Death is death. Destruction is destruction. It'll never change. God doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. What's always right is always right. What's always wrong is always wrong. Whatever, what's always holy is always holy. And what's always evil is always evil. Maybe not in a society or the laws they make when they call good evil and evil good. But in the end, as the dogs licked Ahab's blood from his chariot, evil always gets dealt with by the living God. So the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Romans chapter 12 tells us, after all the good things that God's done for us in the first 11 chapters, it tells us after to present ourselves as living sacrifices to abhor evil, to really know it's evil and abhor it. There's just no, there's just no situation or circumstance by which this is ever acceptable. And we need to know these things, have them firm in our own life for how it affects us personally in our moral choices and how what we tolerate and don't tolerate in our marriage, in our home, and with our family and relatives, and to speak up and raise the voice on behalf of those who can't raise that voice. Evil is always evil. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. In fact, it says in Proverbs 16, 6, to fear the Lord is to depart from evil. So because there's an accountability and a judgment, then we're motivated to not do those things by which we'll be accountable for and to sit under the judgment of those things and be on the wrong side of God's wrath. We want to be under God's wrath under the blood of Christ. We don't want to be outside the blood of Christ with God's wrath. And so because we have that fear of the Lord is judgment and accountability, then we realize the fear of the Lord is to hate evil because we're going to be accountable. So who wants to be associated with that which God judges, which he judged when he crucified his son on the cross for us, and which he'll judge when the books are open on the day of the Lord in Revelation 19. We want nothing to do with it. So the fear of the Lord is judgment and accountability, and the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. And it's a good thing to hate evil. Some people hate good. Some people hate good. Isn't it amazing how some people hate good? Some people attack things that are true, just, noble, and praiseworthy. Man. To stand before the Lord and having defended advanced evil, particularly on minors, oh, that should just terrify all of us. And it's funny because in funny particular in Romans, it says, not only does God judge those who do that, but he judges those who approve of that. It's not just the doing that gets people in trouble in the day of the Lord. It's the approving. And God even holds us accountable for not raising our voice in various circumstances. Finally, the third thing is beautiful. And this is like, because we realize that there is judgment and accountability. We realize because of that, that we, the fear of the Lord is to, to hate evil and abhor that which is evil and understand, like, this is wrong. It's always wrong. There's no universe where it's ever going to be right. This is always wrong. And we want to align ourselves and agree with God that it is wrong. But the third thing is the fear of the Lord is blessing on the righteous. 
The fear of the Lord is blessings on the righteous. Revelation 11 is what I'm going to read from next now. In Revelation chapter 11, with the seventh angel, verse, nine, verse 15, it says this. So we're in the middle of Revelation, all the cyclical judgments that you read about in Revelation. And, and so uh, bear in mind that the 24 elders are generally interpreted as the church in the book of Revelation. So it says in, in, cha- in verse 15 of chapter 11, Then the seventh angel sounded, and, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sat before the Lord on their thrones fell on their faces and worshiped God, So that should be the church saying, we give you thanks, O Lord, God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry and your wrath has come and the time of the dead that they should be judged and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, small and great, and you should destroy those who destroy the earth. In this sequence where things are being proclaimed in when you go from seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, and all that, there's this scene in heaven. You get these parenthetical moments in Revelation where there's a scene in heaven, and it's the it's the, the, the 24 elders praising the Lord and they proclaim that judgment has come, but it's judgment for the world who have destroyed those who destroyed the things, destructors people whose life are destruction, and sin is always destruction, the devil's destruction, it's actually his name is a destroyer. But that you should reward, verse 18, the latter part, you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great. So the fear of the Lord is reward. Now last week's whole topical message was about reward, that God gives reward. And the fear of the Lord has reward in it. Now, just that verse alone does plenty of justice to say, like, wow. <laughs> when you look at the book of Revelation, you want to be like, anything that's good with the Lord, you want to be on the good side of the book of Revelation of Jesus Christ. You want to be, there's really good stuff in there. There's all kinds of rewards for those people on the good, the right side of it, those who have faith in Jesus. Otherwise, it's the wrath of God. Now, David, going back to David now, in Psalm 15, when he's talking about the fear of the Lord, He said in verse 4 of Psalm 15, listen to this one closely, because we want to be fruitful and successful in life with the Lord. He says, honor those, that he honors those who fear him. So David, the man for God's own heart, says that God honors those who fear him. See, it's always all or nothing with the Lord, isn't it? But the cross is all or nothing. It's either, like, that's life. It's blessings or curses. It's, It's the spirit or it's the flesh. It's heaven or it's hell. It's justification or condemnation. It's life or death. It's the Lord reigns or the devil reigns. As Bob Dylan said, you have to serve somebody. It might be the devil, it might be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. It's contrast. It's all or nothing with the Lord. And so the one that passes from wrath and passes to eternal life, now the fear of the Lord is a blessing to the righteous. There's a reward. And God honors those who fear him. Men honor themselves. Women honor themselves. They honor each other. The only honor that matters in time, space, and matter for all eternity is the honor that God gives. We think how we recognize people for success, sports banquets, 
Hall of Fame inductions, these different things that you can see, Academy Awards, whatever. We give honor for all these things. You may not think it's the most important thing, but the most important thing in your journey is to have God honor you. And if we fear the Lord, honor is a result from God for fearing the Lord. It pleases him greatly. David, Psalm 15, 4, the man with the guy after God's own heart. Proverbs 10, 27, Solomon said, the fear of the Lord prolongs your days. There's a blessing there. The Bible associates a rich, full life and the human experience. When I was in Florida a couple weeks ago, surfing with the grandkids. For those people who don't have grandkids, when you get grandkids, you'll understand this. But there's no joy like the joy that grandkids bring you. There's just, there's just not, there's just, it, you just, there's just nothing like it. And, and you're like, when I caught a wave and rode a wave with my four-year-old granddaughter Zippy at Fort Pierce Inlet, and we're riding this wave together, like, there's nothing I've experienced in my life that's ever even come close to something like that. I was at a, a wedding reception, a wedding last night in Vista with a bunch of surfers, and it's a great time, and these surfers all knew me in my career. They're all from North Carolina. I was like one of their heroes. I'm like, and we we're talking about kids and grandkids. I'm like, dude, dude, you, you're surfing with your granddaughter. How's that compared to winning the Pipeline Masters? I'm like, Pipeline Masters is nothing. The joy of a life to make it to 62 and to live to see that moment. Having almost died three times in the ocean in dangerous surfing conditions. Who knows how many times God protect me from something stupid just by his grace that I don't even know. Cops pulled me over. I got weed all in my socks and stuff. They searched me everywhere except my legs. The three other guys that go down their legs, they don't go down my legs. It was never held on my account. That was my brief career as a drug dealer. Literally scared the hell out of me. I never did sell drugs again. Right? Like the, right there across from Carlsbad High School. They pulled up right there. They're there and like, it was like, whoo, you know. I'm trying to sell weed. They go everyone top to bottom, and I've got all this weed, these tie sticks in my socks, both socks. I got like, I'm going to jail. And they stopped right here. The other three guys that went down in the socks. Like, how many times did God do that for you and for me? To live a rich, full life. I was with my brother yesterday, and we were talking about when he got robbed at gunpoint selling weed. The guy pointed the gun right in my face. And, you know, because criminals, well, now it's not criminalized. <laughs> That's, the government gets all the money now. But back then, the criminals got all the money. And criminals robbed criminals. And I had, I, I had a gun in my face. I had to get on the ground. We were talking about that story yesterday. My life could have ended there at the age of 18 in Carlsbad, off Harding Street, right there, robbed at gunpoint. But it didn't. So I'm 62, and I'm surfing with Clementine at Fort Pierce in 79-degree water and 85-degree temperature going like, Right? Man, the blessings of the Lord give you a rich, full life. Not just quantity of days, but quality of days. As Brandon Phillips and I were talking about before service, Melissa in Camp, beautiful woman, loved the Lord. I went to her wedding day, and I went to her funeral four months later. Married to Jeremy Camp, right? Jeremy Camp's first wife. You might just get 21 years, but... Solomon, who lived a long life and made all kinds of mistakes, he recognized that the fear of the Lord prolongs your days. You, are, you have a healthier life. There's less stress in your life. There's less 
health issues induced by fighting the Lord, less worry, less stress, less turmoil. God is good. That's right. All the time, God is good. So prolonged days to be 62 and... <laughs> uh, you go home from something like that, you just... You know when you're a kid and you went to like 7-Eleven got a Slurpee and a maple bar or something? like that? I didn't know what to compare it to. Like when you went to Toys R Us when, when you were a kid and it was a special treat. I just, I just, there's no comparison. When you just shower with... When you're under the spout where the glory comes out and you've got the fullest blessings of the Lord and you're just so complete, like, this is a great day for the Lord to return. Because you're just, that's what, the fear of the Lord brings blessings upon the righteous. And we're righteous because of faith in Jesus, not because we earned it, but because we received it, then we begin to live it. And we just set ourselves up with the blessings. The fear of the Lord, Proverbs 14, 27, is a fountain of life. You know, sin is brack water. It's bad water. It's foul water. Sin is bad water. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. The fear of the Lord, Proverbs 19.23, leads to life. Not just life, this life, but abundant life, eternal life. And one that really gets you fired up, if you're like that, 22.14. 22.4, the fear of the Lord brings riches and honor. And I'm not guaranteeing you're going to win the lottery or anything, but to be under the wrath of God is just chastening and frustration, frustrating relationships, frustrating marriages, frustrating adult kids, frustrating workers, frustrating, like, governments taking your money. It's all frustrating. But to have the to receive the Lord and to live in the fear of the Lord, it brings blessings upon the righteous. So again, uh, honor for those who fear him. Prolonged days, fountain of life, leads to life, riches, and honor. That's what the fear of the Lord brings. God wants to bless us and the blessings of the Lord upon the fear of the Lord. So we fear the Lord and judgment and accountability. We come to Christ and we're saved by grace through faith and we're under the blood and filled with the spirit. And then we abhor evil because Christ died for that evil. So who's going to crucify Christ again? We want to be saved by grace, saved by faith, and align our thoughts and actions and life choices and attitudes with Jesus and be blessed and live a blessed life. Or as Jesus said, wisdom is justified by our children. And there's, no, there's nothing more beautiful than people have walked with the Lord for decades and the good fruit that the joy of the Lord and the blessings of the Lord bring upon their life. I have a closing thought to all this. So the fear of the Lord is judgment and accountability. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, and the fear of the Lord is a blessing to the righteous. <laughs> what an invitation. But I was thinking of that passage from 1 John where it says, perfect love casts out all fear. It's a pretty well-known passage because there's no, there's no fear in love. And it really had me thinking kind of almost theologically, like that's really what happens. Like we fear the Lord because we're under the wrath of God before we come to Christ. But because Christ died for our sins and we receive Christ, whom the Son sets free is free indeed, and we pass from death to life. And now we, we're on the other side of the cross. We go from under the wrath to the love side. The love was always offered, but when we receive Christ, we've received the love. We love him because he first loved us. And so now the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's freely given to us, Romans 5, 5. And so now, now we're on the love side where Father knows best. Now it's like we pray like, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. See, that's the respect and reverence where there's a loving relationship between children who love their parents and vice versa. 
but it's not a wrath relationship. And so we come back to John 3, 16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believed in him, you know, would have eternal life. They passed from death to life. So the fear of the Lord is a sobering thing. It's a healthy thing, but it's a very encouraging thing. And so, again, I tell you, body of Christ, WG, the fear of the Lord is blessings upon the righteous. So walk with the Lord and know those blessings. Yes and amen.